Romans chapter 9. Romans 9. This is a, a deep chapter, a deep section to say the least. The comforting, comforting declarations that Paul had given the Christians for their assurance in chapter 8, 30, uh, verses 30 to 39 have brought this issue up again of how we are supposed to read and understand the Old Testament. If all this talk of election, predestination, right, the, the promise of God is true regarding Christians, of course, well, what about Israel in the Old Testament and the Jewish people throughout history? They were spoken of as chosen of God also. God is an electing, choosing God. How did His electing work unfold throughout the history of the patriarchs and the Israelites and, of course, the split with the Judeans? And the explanation not only has to uphold the Word of God in the Old Testament, which we know Paul is adamant to do from Romans 3.31 and texts like it, but also it needs to go on to explain the designation of those in Christ as the elect Israel in Romans 11 verse 7, bound to God by His covenant love. And so, once again, in chapters 9 through 11, Paul interprets the Old Testament in Romans. This time, to show that it's perfectly consistent to comfort Christians on the basis of God's electing love, while simultaneously maintaining that God's Word has not failed because so many Israelite people who were also chosen in some sense, apparently, now stand condemned. Paul's appeal to the electing love of God in Romans 8 demands that he deal with what the Old Testament says about election and the electing love in the plan of God in the only place we've seen that scheme so far in Scripture in Israel and in their entire history throughout the Old Testament even up to the present of Romans chapter 9. Paul has to do this. Remember what he's arguing for in Romans to support his main theme that the righteousness of God, the faithfulness and consistency of God in keeping his promises is revealed in the gospel that he preaches. If he doesn't prove that that's the case, his gospel will fall to the charge of his Jewish opponents in Rome that Paul's gospel actually makes God out to be a liar who is untrue to his Old Testament promises. The gospel as Paul preaches it fulfills the Old Testament word concerning Israel by showing us the nature of the promises God makes to His people. Let me pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word and what it teaches. And God, I ask that You would overshadow me in these next moments for the sake of Your Word and overcome everything fleshly and prideful in me that I might preach Your Word with clarity for the sake of Your people and for the sake of Your name in our midst. So help me, the speaker, help those who listen, help us all to believe Your perfect Word that does not change and does not fail. We need it to be like this or we are lost. So comfort us. We ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 1 here in Romans 9. Paul writes, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. 
For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. If the fact that God keeps His promises without exception to whomever He makes them is meant to be the grounds for our assurance, as Paul has just argued, look at what he's doing now, then what do we make of Israel's rejection of God's promise being fulfilled in Christ and the resulting condemnation it means, or that means, for unbelieving Jewish people? The Israel that are Paul's countrymen according to the flesh had received all these advantages because they were God's chosen people. And yet, the majority of them in Paul's time, and now if we're honest, stood condemned for rejecting Christ. Well, what makes Christ so central to all this? Why does He make or break whether or not the promise is kept? What do we make of the Word of God when it seems to have had no effect, really, for Israel? Paul begins by admitting that the fact that most of Israel was lost, or is lost, is heartbreaking for him. It's devastating for him. His sorrow over his countrymen's rejection of Christ is genuine. He's so much, he has the mind of Christ as an apostle so much that he says he would rather be accursed himself if it would mean the salvation of his countrymen according to the flesh, the nation, those that share his earthly ethnicity. So, however we were to read Romans 9-11, through 11, I say 9-11, through 11, we're not looking at all that today, but it is one whole section. <clears throat> however we read this, it is not Paul saying, oh well, tough break about ethnic Israel. No, not at all. Nor should we take that tone in our hearts. That would be sinful. As a nation... They received all the blessings of verses 4 and 5. The highest and greatest, of course, being that the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, the God-man, came from their bloodline according to the flesh. Just as Romans 1.16 said, because of this, the gospel indeed came to the Jew first. So, are there any distinctive gifts of grace that were given to Israel? Yes, absolutely. They're here. Does possession of any or all of them put the Israelites in a more advantageous position than Gentiles over against God? No. So what exactly is the nature of God's electing promise? How does it work? That is what he goes on to address now in verses 6 through 13. So I know walking through a text like this is is a little harder because it's a little more technical, but I do think the end result is worth it. So I'll try to do this well. Verse 6, but it is not as though the Word of God has taken no effect or has failed. So the promise, the Word of God, that's not where the problem is with so much of Israel rejecting Christ. Impotency or inefficiency on the part of the promise or the God who makes it is not the issue. It is not as though the Word of God has taken no effect for in verse 6. So here's why that's the case. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. So the first question is, who is Israel, first of all? Now, that seems like a very silly way to argue. right? That doesn't seem like a question that needs to be asked. right? Who, um, they're not really all Italians who are Italians. 
That's what Paul just said. Can't you just hear his opponents as he, they receive this letter and read that line? Is Paul trying to play fast and loose with the text here to get God off the hook so that his gospel can continue to be preached? Is he playing games with words? Paul, Israel is Israel. Duh. Not in terms of God's promise. It isn't. So we have to answer that question first. Who is Israel? Then we can determine whether God's word, his electing promise, has no effect in Israel. The fulfillment of God's word in Christ, the seed of Abraham, has revealed who Israel actually is and has been all along. Paul will argue that the distinction was actually made all the way back when God made the promise. And in the way God made the promise, it should have been clear. The Old Testament prepared us for the fact that being a true Israelite, whatever that means, it isn't actually a matter of physical descent. You had all these physical descendants that did not get the promise and now stand condemned because they reject Christ who comes at the end of all these things in the fullness of time. So it's not according to the flesh. That's not what makes Israel Israel. That's not how the promise gets passed down. That's not the way it works. In verse 7, nor, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. Paul is being ridiculous now. That, that's what it means to be the seed of someone, Paul. You're their child. You're, you're literally trying to change the meaning of words. And Paul is going to say, no, I'm not. I'm trying to define words biblically. So that you don't think God's promise fails or could fail. Paul is making a clear biblical distinction in this text between Israelites according to the flesh and the true Israel of God. All those of faith, like believing Abraham, for the promises belong to them and to them alone. So Paul is graciously walking us through the Old Testament text a word at a time. If you will, Paul is saying that to be an Israelite by birth is not what it means to be an Israelite. That word actually means something else. And that being a descendant of Abraham by bloodline merely does not make one a descendant of Abraham. But in verse seven, but so here's what makes children's seed, right? But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Ah, okay, called. That which is the seed has to be specifically called the seed to be the seed in a different way than just being born into the family. Isaac, who is Abraham's second son, he's the child of promise. His firstborn, according to the flesh, Ishmael, is not. Why? Because God called Isaac the seed and brought him forth through Abraham in Sarah's womb. God chose Isaac to be the seed. The conception of Isaac, to remember, Sarah was barren. She wasn't going to be able to do this through the flesh. The conception of Isaac to be the seed to whom all the promises would come was a miracle of God's grace because God had a plan and a promise. It was this child of promise, not the child of mere flesh, that God called his seed. Remember, Always remember this. Ishmael was a son of Abraham too. Ishmael also received many blessings from God. Ishmael was also circumcised by Abraham. It didn't matter. 
he was not the chosen seed just because he came from Abraham and was born to him. That privilege to be the seed requires God's electing call, period. Or you're not a seed. You're not who God has made the promises to. The children of promise have to be called that by God. They're not in the promise automatically by physical descent. Paul has been using the word gift this whole letter. Gift to describe those who inherit God's promise of salvation. Gifts are not something that are owed to a recipient. As though being born into a Jewish family meant God owed you the blessing. He had, he'd trapped himself by it. So that even if you tried to get around the blessing like Abraham and Sarah did, God is like, well, I'm stuck now. I wanted it to be Isaac, but it has to be Ishmael because he comes from your blood. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Which should be of great comfort to you that think you could snatch yourself out of God's hand and undo his promise to you. He just won't let it happen. Gifts are granted by the giver to whomever he chooses to give them. All God's promises work like this. They are based on God's grace according to his purpose and plan for the world as a gift and never as what he owes to us or must do. In Genesis 21.12, which is what Paul is citing here in verse 7, God was assuring Abraham that even though Sarah was sending Hagar and the firstborn son Ishmael away, it did not mean that his promise was lost. God is in charge of who the promised seed is, so it's just like he said, don't worry, in Isaac your seed shall be called. God makes a call to determine who his people are, And so not all the children of Abraham are the seed of Abraham. Verse 8, that is, so here's what Genesis 21, 12 that he just quoted. Here's what it means. Okay. In verse 8, that is those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God. Hear that again. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. He does not say that all the physical descendants are still some sort of God's children also. And so they still get the promises too, but that they are not his children at all. Meaning he is not covenant bound to them to be their father and owes them in actuality nothing. Jesus Christ, in John chapter 8, makes this very distinction. Remember, he's, he did this because that's what God has been teaching. We have Abraham as our father. No, you don't. He says that to Jews. You are of your father, the devil. You are not the seed of Abraham. You're the spawn of Satan. I don't care what your ethnicity is, he says. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as seed. Counted is a big word in Romans. It means what God declares or gives to you of His own gracious will. So that's how you become the seed. That's how you become Israel. You have to be counted as such, even if and when you're a physical descendant of Abraham. So all the physical descendants of Abraham according to the flesh, that's not who God calls Israel. 
when it comes to the promise he's made. In verse 8, the promises given to Abraham are not theirs. They don't belong automatically to the children of the flesh. Those promises, the promise, are for Abraham's seed, the called of God. Those of merely physical descent have no claim on them and don't hold God in their debt as though God is unjust if they don't get stuff too. That's precisely what is at issue here. Who are the people of God? Because if it's this whole nation, the word of God has failed because most of them are going to hell. That is precisely why Paul can say in verse 6, the fact that so many Israelites, according to the flesh, stand condemned and cut off from the promises for rejecting Jesus is not because God's electing word to Israel has failed. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's because God only made his promise to Israel. And Israel are those to whom God calls or those whom God calls Israel, like Isaac in his first example, not those who are physically born into Abraham's family like Ishmael in his first example. God perfectly keeps his promise to those whom he makes it. Israel is a name for those whom God counts as his offspring by his gracious word. That's what the progressive revelation of God's word that terminates, ends perfectly in Christ and can't be added to has been saying and is now fulfilled in him. If we don't read the Old Testament in light of what Paul was given by the Holy Spirit uniquely and exclusively to reveal. Why do we think part of the reason is God had Christ take him into the wilderness for three years for his own instruction? Because on him was going to come the burden of explaining things like this that would be rejected from now, from then until now. If we don't read the Old Testament in light of what Paul teaches us about it, we are not going to understand the promises properly. God's electing promises are not for the ethnic nation of Israel as a whole. They simply are not. Or God's word has failed. They are for the seed of Abraham, who, by the way, is Christ. And all who are in him by grace through faith in Galatians 3, Jew or Gentile. Being the true seed of Abraham has never been a matter of the flesh. This isn't some sort of replacement theology now. This is how the whole Bible explains God's eternal plan. It's always only ever been grace that makes someone God's true child to whom he has made his saving promise. Verse 9, for this is the word of promise. Here's what it sounds like. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. The word of promise is a word about what God will accomplish by grace, not of what Abraham and Hagar or Sarah will accomplish by their flesh. <clears throat> so the children of said promise wouldn't be by the flesh either. In Genesis 18.10, it's quoting here, God had promised to Abraham that Sarah would become pregnant at that same time next year that God was speaking to him. Abraham should have kept believing it, but he didn't. He succumbed to Sarah's compulsion to go into their servant Hagar and bring the child about by themselves. God is delaying. It's not going to happen. We're too old. There's no way. You go into Hagar and, and we'll bring the child into the world and God can work through that child. But the birth of Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn son, 
by way of Sarah's scheming, by way of Abraham's giving in, by way of Hagar's body, did not make God change His plan and make Ishmael the promised child as though God is stuck by the laws of flesh and nature. He can be overridden by them. Thank God that that's, that's one of the reasons why in the Bible we believe you cannot lose your salvation. Because the promise of God cannot be overridden. No matter what we do. Nor did these things force God to change His mind and give all the promises to Ishmael's seed instead. No, no, no. God had an eternal plan that couldn't be revoked. In Isaac shall your seed be called. This is the Word of God that does not fail, no matter what Abraham does. Israel are those whom God calls Israel, like Isaac, even though these are others. there are others who are actually physical sons of Abraham, also like Ishmael. The reason the fallen state of ethnic Israel made the people doubt that Paul was preaching God's gospel is because they weren't defining the word Israel biblically. That is, according to the nature of God's promise. And God continued to work according to this pattern in Isaac's descendants. Pick it up in verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man. So please take note of what the text is doing here. The Holy Spirit has inspired very precise words so that we will listen to them. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand or continue, not of works, but of him who calls. Because of all that, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Isaac and Ishmael are not the only example of the nature of God's promise in the Old Testament. The same principle always holds true in the Old Testament throughout history. The plan of God is always characterized by His gracious choice. And the covenant, by the way, that came 430 years later than the covenant with Abraham, with national Israel at Sinai, did not nullify or change any of this. So that from then on, from Sinai on, then God's plan would apply to those of physical descent automatically. No, that's Galatians 3.17. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, who had also been barren, by the way. So there's a pattern. This is how God seems to work when he wants to accomplish his promise against normal convention, against the you know what we might be able to contribute and take credit for. God takes all that out of the way. Every time he's working in a saving way, we aren't doing anything. And God's choosing of a nation is for the purpose of salvation. Therefore, we have nothing to do with it. Nothing that is just He owes us because we are what we are. Their father, so Isaac's wife, Rebecca, who had also been barren, she conceives two children in her womb, twin boys, at the same time, by one father. And that father was the child of promise that God had called the seed, remember. This is Isaac now, grown up as a father. So naturally, these twin boys and all their physical descendants will be the true Israel now, right? Because he's the child of promise. No. 
which makes the example of Isaac's descendants an even clearer message about how God's promise works. This is a little different than two sons by two different women and God chooses one. These are two children by the same father in one womb. By one man. And that father is himself the child of promise. So how will God's electing choice work now? Does he still choose? Can he still choose? Is he bound by the flesh of Isaac and Rebekah? Surely he can't pick one over the other now. They're in the same womb at the same time. We are meant to see how God is not bound by anything natural or physical. But that the promise always depends on His gracious choice. The nature of the promise is to go against what is natural and expected. That's an integral part of what the promise is like in the first place. The distinguishing of Jacob from Esau is even more remarkable than the distinguishing of Isaac from Ishmael. The power of God's calling or naming that which is his seed is meant to be seen as so great in verse 12 that he makes distinguishing calls in the womb between two biological sons from the same mother and father. God chooses one of those twins, the younger one in fact, Jacob, to carry on the seed and says that Esau will serve him even though Esau was, like Ishmael to Abraham, the firstborn. This goes against everything, but that's the nature of the promise. And notice something else. Verses 11 and 12 are very careful to show us at this point. The choices that God makes are completely independent of human work or will. In verse 11, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil. That's when God made his choice. For it is not of works, but of him who calls So God didn't make his choice of Jacob and reject Esau based on his divine foreknowledge. What he saw ahead of time of what they would do or the kind of men they would become. In fact, you could make the case really that Esau was often a much more honorable man than Jacob was. But the eternal plan of God isn't according to any of that. It's according to election so that God's mercy might be magnified in justification by grace through faith apart from works so that no one can boast. He's arguing for that now in the Israel, Isaac, Ishmael, Jacob, Esau framework. Even in the physical means by which God would bring his Savior into the world, even in the physical means, he would not let any human being be able to take credit for it or produce it themselves. No one will be able to hold on to their ethnicity, hold up their ethnicity and say, God, you owe me. God is in no one's debt. In 1133 to 36 at the close of this section, that idea becomes part and parcel of his whole argument. God owes nobody anything. So nobody can say, hey, you said that you were going to do this. I wasn't talking to you is the answer. God told Rebecca the older will serve the younger. God was proclaiming a message about how he was going to save the world one day. And it wouldn't be because of us or what we're doing. The word of God overrules human custom. It goes against what would be natural. Verse 13, as it is written. So here's proof of what he had just said. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So now the prophets in the Old Testament, he's quoting Malachi 1, 2 to 3, 
they corroborate the Genesis account of how God was working out his eternal plan in the patriarch. So nothing changed. Now, this is very important. We're going to dig into this, I think, a lot more next week specifically. Verse 13, and actually none of this, is is teaching us something about individual salvation and eternal life. As though you could read verse 13 and say, okay, so God loves Jacob and all his physical descendants, so they'll all go to heaven. And God hates Esau and all his physical descendants, and so they'll all go to hell. And that is a picture of God with every person on earth. Some of them he loves and they'll go to heaven. He chooses them and some of them he hates and they'll go to hell. And that's what he chooses them for. No, no, a thousand times no. Now, that's much different to my shame than what I used to believe and preach. Much different. The point here in Romans 9 is not individual salvation, but God's plan. And how he works it out physically according to the principle of election. The context of Malachi 1, 2, and 3 is not the salvation of individuals. That's not what the text is addressing. Paul didn't stop. He's like, okay, now in Romans 9 to 11, I'm going to address this doctrine. He's, he's arguing. He's proving his point from Scripture so that you and I won't doubt his promises. He's doing it to give assurance, to solidify, to build up and bolster assurance. It's not about the salvation of individuals, but of how Jacob, Israel, was chosen by God to be the nation through whom he would work out his plan. And Esau, or Edom, the nation that came from him, was not chosen by God to be that nation. Loving and hating need to be defined by the context, like the words in the text. Like Paul is giving us a principle for interpretation, isn't he? So when I, when, when he says, when he says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, well, how? What does that mean? Because apparently God speaks like this. And here hated means you were not my chosen nation for the world to bring the Messiah into it. That was for Jacob, not for Esau. That was for Israel, not for Edom. And again, we'll dig into that a little bit more next week because verses 14 through 29 can be extremely terrifying. And difficult if, if we're not reading them in their proper context. And again, I've, I've done that. I've, I've helped create that mess sometimes in, in churches among people when I thought I was giving assurance and I wasn't giving it at all because I thought they meant different things. But thank God he doesn't throw me out with the trash. All right. In the immediate context of Romans 9, Paul is building his case for who the true Israel is. Because what's at question here is whether or not God keeps his promises. And the true Israel is not by physical descent, but by God's gracious choice. Because his eternal plan is to bring salvation to all nations through the true seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. That he might give his son a beautiful, holy, multicultural, multinational bride who will glorify him together for his mercy. The plain meaning of the text then in Romans 9 through 113 is this. The promises of God apply only to those who believe. They do not apply to those who do not believe, whether they are Jew or Gentile. So if you believe this morning, do not be afraid that his word will ever fail you. Beloved, the Bible is one long account of the fact that God will never fail those whom he loves and means to save by his grace. Ever. 
and we might disagree over the particulars here in some ways. Some of us I don't know. But on that, we should agree. The goal of chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, then, is to reject this, the general idea that God's promise of salvation is linked irrevocably to physical descent, right? A Jewish person cannot say, again, God is bound by his promise to save me eternally because that is what his choice of Israel and his Old Testament promises to the patriarchs and Israel means. They cannot say that. That's what Paul is saying. If that is what it means, then the word of God has failed and has taken no effect because so many of them are lost. Saying God's electing word fails or has no effect is saying what Paul has been trying to prove is not true the whole letter, that there is injustice with God. Which is why Paul is taking up this issue to show that, listen, I want to hammer it home. That's not the case. The gospel doesn't mean God has forsaken anybody that he made promises to and therefore can't keep his word to you. That's the whole point. To make that point, though, Paul has to destroy the physical descent interpretation system of the Jews and namely his Jewish Christian opponents in Rome and declare that the people who belong to God forever, they are not the same as everyone born to our physical forefather, Jacob. The seed of Abraham means Christ, we find in Scripture, and all who are in him, not Abraham's physical descendants, who he said, by the way, are not the children of God. They're not the children of God. That's a verse from the Bible. I'm quoting the Bible. The promises, therefore, to the seed of Abraham are for them and for them alone, since there are not two seeds of Abraham, even if they're in the same womb at the same time, that God is responsible for keeping promises to. Israel is the name for God's one people to whom come all the promises in Jesus Christ. If all the things said to and about Israel in the Old Testament do not guarantee salvation to individual Jews as physical descendants of Abraham, then what is being said in all those places? That's part of what Paul is doing here. Because Romans 10.4, by the way, will tell us that Christ is the goal of the law, the fulfillment, the telos, the completion, the point of the Old Testament. Ultimately, the Old Testament has Christ as its end and its point, not an earthly nation. What is going on in the entire history of the world from the beginning to the patriarchs to the children of Israel and to the Judeans, beloved? What is going on in the entire history of the world that leads by God's providence to the survival in all this mess and deportation and exile to the survival of a few Judean individuals including a daughter of Abraham named Mary and a son of David named Joseph what is going on is that God is at work the whole time to guide history so as to bring about the fulfillment of the promise in the plan of salvation when he brings forth Jesus as the atoning sacrifice to make it all come true and be final Everything in the Bible, everything from childbirth to the flood to the ark to the dove to the rainbow to Abraham to Potiphar's wife to Pharaoh's daughter and all the way through to Nehemiah and Ezra and Esther and Mordecai, even Simon and the Maccabees and all that mess has been guided to that goal. 
Israel was selected for that role in history according to God's eternal plan of election to bring the Messiah, the promised seed into the world for the benefit of the whole world because that's what was promised to Abraham. All nations. That's why God is working in Israel. That's another way of saying, Paul is saying, listen, physical descent is not determinative as it pertains to receiving the promise. And then verses 9 through 13 are there to validate this way of interpreting the scriptures using God's uh, plan to fulfill all things in Christ as the interpretive principle for all scripture. Paul is validating that way of interpreting Showing that the word of God, not human laws of inheritance based on physical descent, determine the lineage of the bearers of the promise of the seed. It was true in the case of Isaac. Ishmael was set aside because of God's miraculous word on Sarah. It was true in the case of Jacob. God's word to Rebekah prophesied and determined the twins' relationship to each other as regards the reception of the blessing which held the promise of blessing for all nations. God's choosing overruled human customs based on descent. So that reference in verse 11 to the purpose of God, His plan is critical for this. That purpose is why God has done everything He's done. Even all the way back in the patriarchs forward to this time, this moment, and now to this by way of the Holy Spirit. Since he is not bound by human law at all. Since he is indebted to no one. There's nobody that could say, God, you were unjust to me. Christ has made it so that nobody can say that regardless of their ethnicity. Nobody in the world can say, now, God, you didn't keep your promise to me. You're not faithful. God would say, in Christ, I have kept every promise to everyone whom I've made them to. Since he's not bound by human law, God determines the who, the what, and the when for the working out of his plan of salvation. Let God be true and every man a liar. He selected in accordance with that plan Isaac instead of Ishmael, Jacob instead of Esau. So what's the nature of God's promise to us then? How can we know that it will be kept Beloved, because being Abraham's offspring in this world is not a matter of physical descent. It is a matter of grace through faith. It's counterintuitive on purpose. So that there's nothing like it we can compare it to. Because then we'll start adding all our baggage to it also. Well, you know, if if that's how the promise works, then maybe it, it won't hold out because etc., etc., You can't compare this God to anyone or anything. You can't compare the way He works to anyone or anything. He's completely unique in the universe. He is God overall, blessed forever. Amen. All those of faith are the seed of Abraham. Meaning that every promise belongs to you who believe this morning with no qualification whatsoever. His word has not and will not ever fail those who believe. It's in Christ that we understand precisely what all the promises were saying. 
Israel's rejection of their Messiah when he came is, is, is precisely because fulfillment didn't look like the promise. They thought it was going to look different, and it, it looks like it was meant to look by God. The nature of God's promise for you is all grace. All grace. All grace. So that all who receive Christ and his work for them on the cross will be saved. The nature of God's promise means that God is always more powerful than the circumstances of our lives and our DNA and our biology. He can overcome even what we cannot change or help about ourselves. And there are such things. Most things about us, we could help if we wanted to. There are some things we cannot. And the text means that God is sovereign and powerful and his purpose cannot be thwarted by even those things. Even what is natural and normal and expected. God makes it his M.O. to not work like that. And not just not work like that, but overturn that so that his purpose might be accomplished. That's the grace of God for you in Christ. And for all who believe. He is always more powerful than the circumstances of our lives. Whether someone is threatening or trying to hurt us or kill us or control us. Or the mess we're in is entirely of our own making. He is stronger. He is always stronger and better and higher and surer than anything you and I can do or anyone can do to us. The saving word of God is more powerful than anything and everything that might threaten it. The nature of God's promise means that all his promises in Christ are yes and amen for you. Receive them, and they are yours. Irrevocably are the gifts and the callings of Almighty God who saves in Christ. 